Well, if you've uh, been with us, obviously you're familiar with where we're at here in the context of the story of John. Uh, here in the 16th hour, just just literally a few hours away from the uh, uh, from the end of the Lord's life, we're Thursday evening. His arrest, his trial, his execution is coming on Friday afternoon, and the Lord has been giving final instructions, final promises, warnings, uh, pledges to the 11 faithful disciples that remain. Uh, the evening you might remember began back up in chapter 16. It was a celebration of the Passover in a rented room. Uh, it was a Uh, a night of love. It began with a tangible demonstration and affirmation of the Lord's love uh, towards these 12 at the time as uh, the Lord washed the feet of his disciples and then commanded them to love each other in in a like self-sacrificial manner. The Lord has uh, foretold his betrayal. He's told of Peter's denial. He's promised that uh, those who follow him uh, will be with him forever in his father's house. Uh, He's given them teaching and instruction of bearing fruit and being fruitful and living lives in a world that will produce uh, eternal uh, results. Then he's given them just promise after promise, promise after promise, again, pouring out his love upon them, promises of all the gifts of heaven that will be theirs because of God the Father's love for them. He's promised that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to depart, but he's not going to leave them alone. And when he departs, he'll send to them the helper. And back in John 14, verse 16, Christ says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. In verse 26 of John 14, he says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So again, Christ is about to depart from these men, but he's promised to them he's not going to leave them alone. Uh, They're going to be aided in this life by a helper, a comforter, an advocate, the perkletos, meaning someone who is someone, someone who's called to one side, especially to render aid, someone to give strength and encouragement and help in times of difficulty, times of trouble, times of temptation. Uh, Another helper, the Lord says, another one just like me, another of the same kind, just as Christ says, just as I am God, he will be God. And just as I have been with you, Uh, the Lord says he will be in you. So that's the promise of Christ to his followers. Chapter 15, verse 26, the Lord says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And and as I pointed out to you last time, that really is the true ministry of of the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth, and his primary, the Holy Spirit's primary role is to teach the true disciples of Christ, Christ's truth to bring to remembrance all that Christ said, to point them to the person of Jesus Christ, to bear witness of him, and to testify about Christ. That is his role. And here in our verses this morning, in the 16th chapter, verse 13, the Lord says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. So again, when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, the promise of Christ is that he will put all truth in their hands. And he's going to point them, again, in the context, first most, or first and foremost, to the disciples. He's going to point them to all truth, and then by extension to us. Who's going to point us to truth and point us to Christ? Holy Spirit gives testimony concerning the person of Christ. He's going to bring to these men's remembrance all that Christ said and did. And basically, as I told you, that really, in the context, is really the promise of the New Testament Scripture. Again, this is before the New Testament Scripture has been written. So this is the promise of the coming of the New Testament Scripture because it's the Holy Spirit who moves in the hearts and the lives of the writers of the New Testament to bring to their remembrance all of that Christ did in his ministry and that we would know all that he did, all that he said. And, And then for these men, through the power of the Holy Spirit, again, to record that, to write it down for us so we might have a copy of it. And again, I'll speak about this more just in a in a few moments, but that's the role of the Holy Spirit, the biblical role of the Holy Spirit. He, he glorifies the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, as I just said, this night, this last night with the disciples and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's uh, again just literally hours uh, before his crucifixion. It has indeed with them been a night of love. Christ pouring out his love upon his disciples, but then you'll remember the whole thing changes dramatically in uh, chapter 15, verse 18. 
He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And you remember I told you that the world is that system that is in opposition and rebellion to God. It's the system that is anti-Christ, anti-Scripture. It's the world of unregenerate people, unregenerate men, and all their practices, all their ideologies, all their ideas, all their philosophies. And I also told you that the whole world lies in the power of whom? The evil one, right? It belongs. The whole world lies in the power of Satan. Now we, uh, as followers of Christ, we're not part of the world. But because we're not part of the world, the world is going to hate us because it hated Christ, the one whom we follow. The world is going to persecute us because the world persecuted Christ. And again, we've gone through that the last couple times together. And I told you, again, that not only did the Lord tell them that he was going to depart from them, but he began to teach them more specifically that he was going to be murdered, uh, that he was going to die. It began with kind of uh, veiled illusions. But then as he proceeded further, he became more and more specific in the details, and he spoke openly and directly about his abuse, about his death, about his execution, and then about his coming resurrection. But at the moment, the men don't understand what he is saying, and most especially, they don't want to hear what he's saying. They don't want to hear what he's talking about. They're terrified. They're confused. They rightly believe that Jesus is the Messiah and associated with the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament was that when the Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom and establish his throne in Jerusalem and that he would throw or overthrow all of the enemies of the nation of Israel and bring not only salvation to the nation, but salvation to the nation and salvation to the nation of Israel, but all the nations. He's going to rule. Old Testament says that the Messiah will rule the world from his throne in Jerusalem. And that's what they were expecting for the Messiah when he came. Because again, that's what the Old Testament teaches on the coming Messiah. But now all of a sudden, believing he is the Messiah, now all of a sudden he's starting to talk about being hated and persecuted. He's talking about not only leaving, but he's talking about being executed. And the disciples don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it because they don't have a category for it. So they just try to do what we all do, and we don't like something we hear. We just pretend we didn't hear it, right? We just try to ignore it, right? Uh, they're full of fear, full of anxiety over the entire issue. And, and I, he, he's told them earlier that they're going to enjoy his peace. They're going to enjoy his love. But at the moment, they're not feeling a whole lot of peace, nor are they feeling a whole lot of love. Again, at the moment, in the context, they're terrified, distressed, anxious, uh, they're without joy. They're unable to understand how are they going to represent Christ in this world uh, of hatred. And again, Christ says, Remember the word I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But these things they will do for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So from love and blessing and encouragement that Christ wants to bring to his true followers, Again, the whole thing shifts to hatred. Hatred of the world for the true followers of Christ. Hatred, persecution, conflict. And especially from the current religious establishment. John 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They, the religious leaders, they will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So again, he's promised that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to depart. There's going to be conflict. He's not going to leave them alone. That's the hope he's trying to give them. He's not going to leave them alone in a world full of trouble. But he's going to send them another one like him, the helper of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 of that chapter says, Now I'm going to the, him who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going, but because I have said these things you, you're, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now again, they don't understand what this whole thing means at the moment. Uh, there's trouble, conflict, promise to them in the world. And again, the Lord's trying to bring them some comfort. And, and they're absolutely, at the moment, preoccupied with themselves, self-absorbed in their own sadness. Uh, and while they are not asking the Lord or showing concern for the Lord, none of you ask me where you're going. The Lord is completely occupied with them. He's concerned about them. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. 
but if I go, I will send him to you. Again, he, they don't understand, but they need to listen, just like all of us. We may not understand, but we need to listen to the, what the word of God says. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So again, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of turmoil in, internally, he's trying to give them hum, uh, comfort, and he wants them to listen to what he says and to trust what he says. And again, he's pointing to this one whom he's promised to send, this helper who's going to come, this comforter. Drop down to verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whenever he hears, or whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So again, the whole focus here of the Lord is the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and his coming. So again, Jesus says, in essence, look, I am going to depart. I am going to leave. But I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and take my place. He's actually the one who's been with us. You don't realize that, but he has actually been the one who's been with you and me, but now he's going to permanently indwell you. And again, we know historically that promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And it's true for every genuine believer, every Christian. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, at the moment of conversion, dwells within each one of us permanently on this side of the cross. Now, last time in our study, we were in verses 8 through 11. And really what you have in verses 8 through 11 is a parenthetical thought. It's really the conviction of the Holy Spirit against the world. And these verses, these four verses from 8 through 11, the Lord is telling his disciples, that they are in fact going to be used by him in a world of hostility, but they're going to be empowered by this person who comes, the person of the Holy Spirit. And they will be used and empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit when they just take up God's word and proclaim what it says. That's it. He doesn't say anything about making up some, some new strategy or having some new kind of idea or tell them a whole bunch of things that, that, that they just thought up on their own. He says, all you have to do is just take up the word. Proclaim the word, and through the word, through the person of the Holy Spirit who's empowered the word, you, as my representatives in a world of hostility, you're going to prosecute the world. You'll prosecute the world. Verse 8, when he, again the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. If you were not with us last time, and I know some of you weren't because of the snow, you might want to listen to that sermon. Because the true teaching on those verses is a little bit different than what most people think it says on a casual look. Because those verses are really not about the internal converting work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer as most people think and believe. That's not really what that is teaching. But in the context... Verses 8 through 11 are about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit as the prosecutor of God. He comes, he convicts, he condemns the world, he indicts the world, he renders a guilty verdict against the world. He objectively measures the world against the standard, which is the word of God. And again, this world system, this anti-God, anti-Christ, satanic system under the control of Satan and all of his demons falls very short. And when they are measured against the word of God, God's standard... The revelation of the truth of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts them, condemns them for their failure, Most first and foremost, uh, their failure to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the Holy Spirit's confirming the fact the world is absolutely guilty before God in sin, facing eternal ramifications because of the rejection of Christ, condemned, unholy, unrighteous, condemned as unholy and unrighteous already. Remember John 3 and 18, right? he who believes in him is not judged because uh, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged what? Already. It's the word of God that convicts the world in rebellion that they are already under judgment because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So as I told you, the fact is objectively, the objective reality that the Holy Spirit's very presence in the world is another confirmation that the whole world is guilty before a holy God. The whole world is already convicted. The whole world is already convicted, and all that they're awaiting is God's execution of his judgment and eternal wrath. So for you in the room or uh, 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 friends or whoever, 
to wait till tomorrow is to play the fool because you don't know if you have tomorrow. Eternal decisions need to be made today, not tomorrow. Because none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. And the whole world stands already condemned because they've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, 8 through 11 is a fascinating portion of Scripture. Again, it's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit with the prosecuting power of the Spirit, the prosecuting power of the Word of God. Again, it would be a portion of Scripture you would do well if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, to go back and review it. Because the world and who are a part of it are already declared guilty. And the ruler of this world has already been judged. Right? The greatest, most evil earthly power, the greatest, most evil uh, 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 power in the universe, if he has already been judged by God, and he has, therefore every unrepentant sinner who rejects the Savior can also expect to face the fierce condemnation of the eternal wrath of God. That's the basic message of that portion of Scripture. Now again, sobering reminders of the truth that it's a terrifying thing to the fan that fall into the hands of the living God. If the greatest evil in the universe, Satan himself, has already been judged, then there's no sinner escaping God's wrath. While you have time, you best repent. Or again, you'll fall into the hands of the living God and face him in holy terror. Now this morning, when we come to our text before us, verse 12 uh, through 15, that we're going to work our way through, we're coming out of this parenthetical thought. And we're going back to the issue that the Holy Spirit is coming and the work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ. So the Lord is directing his disciples' attention to the fact that the Holy Spirit will glorify and magnify him before believers. So this is the Lord explaining how that's going to happen, how the Holy Spirit is going to work in, in the life of the, these apostles and then by way of extension, us, the church, after Christ's uh, ascension into heaven. So again, what the Lord is saying here first applies in the context to these 11 disciples, these men who will become the apostles. They're the ones who the Holy Spirit is going to guide into all truth and bring to their remembrance all that Christ says, again, so that we might possess a Holy Spirit-inspired text of the New Testament. That's in the context of the issue here. So he's going to explain to them the truth, they reveal the truth, and then secondly, the Lord wants us to know that the Holy Spirit comes, and again, he opens the truth to us, right? He opens the, the truth of the Word of God to us when we study it, when we are in dependence upon him for understanding of that truth. So again, we're going to see as we work our way through the text that basically the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'll give them to you and I'll go back through them again, but it's progressive. It's progressive, it's personal, it's truth-centered, it's Christ-centered, it's Christ-glorifying. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Progressive truth being revealed, personal, truth-centered, Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying. Now, before we even get into the text, I felt like I got to stop and address a couple issues uh, that are out there prevalent concerning the person of the Holy Spirit. Ever since the um, uh, advent of the modern Pentecostal movement, a little over 100 years ago or so, there's been a tremendous amount of emphasis within whatever evangelicalism is, right? Within whatever evangelical circles are of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, there's been a tremendous, and I underscore that, a tremendous amount of confusion and error uh, related to the person of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur, in his book entitled Strange Fire, wrote this. He said, It's a sad twist of irony that those who claim to be the most focused on the Holy Spirit are in actuality the ones doing the most abuse, grief, insult, and misrepresentation and quenching and dishonoring of him. How do they do that, he asked? By attributing to him words he did not say, deeds he did not do, phenomena he did not produce, and experiences that have nothing to do with him, they boldly plaster his name on that which is not his work, in quote. Now, as I say that statement, you probably, or read that statement, you probably have endless examples in your mind of exactly what he's just talking about, all the kinds of nonsense that are out there in the charismatic world from supposed, quote-unquote, Holy Ghost laughter. Remember that one? To people token the ghost. Some people pretend like they're inhaling the, the person of the Holy Spirit and they're getting high like they're smoking some kind of marijuana cigarette. And all kinds of, of course, nonsensical predictions of the future that don't come to pass. All kinds of false prophets, false prophecies, all kinds of speaking in tongues, all kinds of name it and claim it theology. 
Some Pentecostal preachers claim that the Holy Spirit told them to punch, kick, or violently assault people in an attempt to, here it is, quote-unquote, heal them. I mean, just all kinds of abhorrent behavior falsely attributed to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord in this section of Scripture is going to set the record straight, as it were, and he's going to point to the true ministry of the Holy Spirit because his job is to magnify and glorify the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by pointing Christ's followers to him, to Christ, and to the truth. Now, a second error that's out there promoted by the Pentecostal or charismatic movement is namely that believers need to, open quote, receive the Holy Spirit, close quote. And that's a mistaken uh, interpretation of Paul's question uh, to some followers of John the Baptist in Ephesus. It's out of Acts 19.2. You don't need to turn there, but he asked in Acts 19.2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And when they replied in the context, they didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. Paul gave them further instruction. He laid their hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. And based on that experience, or based on that situation, that model incorrectly, uh, the interpretation, uh, believers by the, through the charismatics are, are, are uh, urged, commanded to, quote-unquote, receive the Spirit, or, quote-unquote, be baptized in the Spirit, or come and speak in tongues. And then if you don't do that, then they would say, well, then your, your spiritual life is deficient. You might not even be saved because you've not had this experience. All that to say that it's nothing more than error promoted again by the Pentecostals of the charismatic movement. And I think in part, somebody asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, and I think in part the reason is that that kind of teaching fails to recognize the book of Acts properly. The book of Acts is a trans- transitional book. It's from the Old Testament era into the New Testament era. And the New Testament era is the age of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. And under the apostles in Acts, the ministry of the Holy Spirit spread along the line of the pattern that Christ laid out in Acts 1.18. Christ speaking in Acts 1.18 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So from Jerusalem, which is Acts 2, to Judea and Samaria, which is Acts 8, to the Gentiles, Acts 10, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 19. It's just the gospel is flowing out. And one of the great errors of this, uh, uh, under this heading of this kind of thinking, again, is to fail to understand the transitional nature of the book and failing to also understand that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's a detailed historical account of what happened. It's not a formula to be repeated. It's not a formula to be followed. I I remember early on in my ministry here, I came in contact with a a group of individuals. For them, the whole book of Acts was prescriptive. If we do this, then that'll happen. If we do this, then that'll happen. And their entire ministry was built on that fallacious foundation. You don't have the Spirit. You've got to get the Spirit. You've got to do it. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in this day in which we live, in the age of the church, Paul emphatically states, Romans 8 9, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. He's saying every genuine believer has the person of the Holy Spirit. Every genuine believer is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. Listen, written to, written, writing to the carnally-minded Corinthians, Right, the carnally-minded Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? So Paul didn't say, look, man, your lives are all messed up. You need to, get, you need to quote-unquote, receive the Spirit. He didn't say that. He didn't say, look, you guys need to get baptized in the Spirit. But rather, you need to recognize, he says, who you are in Christ. You need to recognize that at this moment, although you're sinning in gross ways, You are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit presently. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you presently, whom you have from God? See the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves, free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. You see the same thing in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, and then in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The fact that we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe upon the gospel. Ephesians 1, verse 13, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So biblically, quote-unquote, receiving the Holy Spirit is not an experience that you're supposed to have subsequent to salvation. Again, in certain contexts, as we just read there in Acts 19, you might not even be aware of the Spirit's presence in your life until you are taught about that truth. Most certainly, receiving the Holy Spirit is not connected with speaking in tongues, writhing on the floor, barking like a dog, or laughing uncontrollably. Rather, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to those who believe in Christ at the moment of salvation. And the Bible says we are to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit or walk in dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We are called to walk in dependence. We're called not to carry out the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5. We're called to be filled or controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verse 18. So again, if you genuinely believe salvifically upon the person of Jesus Christ, you don't need to quote-unquote receive him. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to some, have some kind of extra experience with the Spirit because he already dwells within you. Isn't that exactly what Christ said, John fourteen seventeen, That the Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it does not know him uh, or behold him or know him, but you know him and he abides in you and he will be in you. So again, we've got to start picking our sources of information. Who are we going to listen to? The world? Are we going to listen to this kind of evangelical craziness out there? Or are we going to listen to what the Word of God says and what the person of Jesus Christ says and what his apostles say? I would suggest to you the latter. Now, I know that's a whole lot of background, a whole lot of information, but now we kind of need that before we can start to look at the text here. When we come to these verses, 12 through 15, it really is, I think, probably... Some of the Bible's most concentrated teaching, biblical teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit. And again, in the context, we're coming to the end of the Lord's farewell discourse uh, uh, with uh, these men. Uh, his life is coming to end. His focus is on them. His focus is on the Holy Spirit. Again, the third person of the Godhead who's been called, uh, who will be called to, to their side, to our side, to minister on Christ's behalf. And so again, the Lord is going to lay out a number of different things that is true about the Holy Spirit. And again, I'll give them to you kind of in a machine gun fashion. We'll work our way back through them. He says he's going to be first the spirit of truth. Really interesting, it's the spirit of the truth. We'll say that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Secondly, he's going to guide believers into all truth. Third, he's going to be one who doesn't speak of himself. Fourth, he's going to speak only what he hears. Number five, he's going to show believers things to come. And number six, he's going to glorify Christ. Seventh thing, he's going to come. He's going to take the things of Christ, the truth of Christ, and share them Show them to God's people. And again, we'll see that as we work our way back through the text, all right? So again, in the context, the Lord's not really talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian here or within the Christian. He's really talking about the Holy Spirit and his special direct relationship to the person of Christ. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the world? The role of the Holy Spirit in the world is to glorify Christ, to magnify Christ before believers. That's true of the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ being glorified through him. That's his ministry. So in verse 12, and he begins here in verse 12 with their need to have this special Holy Spirit revelation, their need. Verse 12, I have many more, thing, many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, uh, now the word bear there literally means to take up with your hands. It's actually used uh, elsewhere, John 10, 31, about picking up a stone uh, with your hands. It's, a, it's that verb, uh, same verb when the people took up the stones and they were going to throw them at Jesus. So what he's saying here is it's too much for you. You can't bear it. It's too weighty. You can't pick it up. It's too heavy. I have many more things to say to you, but if you wanted to put it in the vernacular, you can't handle it right now. You can't handle it. I have things to say to you, many more things to say at the moment, but it's more than you can handle. Now, in the context, this is true for a couple of reasons. Obviously, in the course of the events, these men are at the moment overwhelmed by sorrow because Christ says he's going to leave. So they can't get over the fact that he's going to leave. They can't get over the fact that he's going to leave, and they can't get over the fact that he said, look, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And guess what? Suffering is not only coming for me, but it's coming for you also. Again, they understand him to be the Messiah. They thought he was coming to set all things right, to conquer Israel's enemies, to set up his throne in Jerusalem, and none of that's happening at the moment. 
He's been rejected. They don't know this, but he does. He's been rejected, and he's soon going to be murdered, executed. They just can't handle any more information at the moment, so they're overwhelmed, they're sorrowful, they're confused. And secondly, they're living before the cross. Again, after the cross, God is going to send at the day of Pentecost the person of the Holy Spirit in the world, and he will at that time guide them into all truth. After the Lord's crucifixion, after the cross, the Lord's going to come. Before his ascension, he's going to spend 40 days with them and teach them of the kingdom. And Christ giving an, an intensive course, if you will, on biblical theology. He's saying there's more information to come, much more, but right now you can't handle it. You can't bear the weight because of your own personal issues with the sorrow that you're facing, and you can't understand it because we're this side of the cross. After the cross, the Holy Spirit will come, and then all this will make more sense. But right now you can't bear it. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. Now, in part, that tells us that Revelation is progressive, right? In the historical context of the story, the story is still unfolding. God's word is true from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but there's a progressive revelation and there's a progressive clarity and a, pre- a, profesh- a progressing maturity. The, o- the Old Testament is presented in, or the, 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 the gospel is presented, Christ is presented in, in the Old Testament, but it's pictures, symbols, types, shadows, feasts, animal sacrifices, the Passover lamb, etc., and so forth. And no time has ever God taught that, that, that sinners are forgiven because of animal sacrifices. All those things in the Old Testament were a picture, a shadow of what was to come when the Savior showed up, pointing to him. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ the, comes, the, the Lamb of God. He's going to have his blood shed for our sins. It's really interesting. We stop way back and think of a bigger context. You go back into the book of Genesis, uh, and you go back to the time of Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac's about to be uh, sacrificed in obedience to the Lord's command, and obviously the Lord stays uh, the hand of Abraham. And then Isaac asks that great question. He asks what? Where's the lamb? Fast forward to the New Testament, the book of John. And John, when he sees Jesus Christ, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? There's revelation, truth, but it's progressively coming, becoming more and more clear. So again, these men are filled with sorrow. They're living before the cross. They're living before the resurrection, before the ascension, before all these events take place, before the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're expecting the Messiah to come, to be a conqueror, to drive out the Romans, restore nations, uh, Israel's national sovereignty, but these things aren't happening. And again, the disciples can't grasp a concept of a dying Messiah. They can't grasp the concept of Messiah being uh, rejected because they thought he came to vanquish the Romans when Christ actually came to conquer sin and death. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So again, revelation is progressive and understanding is progressive. I give you an example right out of the Gospel of John. Think back into chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple. Remember that story? Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, destroy this temple. Three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. John gives an editorial comment. Verse 22 out of John 2. Here's the issue. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Right, so again, it's only after these events occur, after the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, that disciples get that clarity again through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now again, there's going to be other truths they can't comprehend in full until the Holy Spirit comes and dwells them permanently again on the day of Pentecost. But right at the moment, they don't have any more storage capacity. They don't have any more ability to grasp or understand, but they will. And I think also here in this story at this moment, you really see the compassion of Christ <laughs> because he doesn't dump it all on them right? Uh, he doesn't dump on them in, the, in the, their condition that they're not ready to receive. And, and again, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. He reveals his truth to us and in us. He grows us kindly and graciously as we refer to his word, right? He reveals the truth to us. Isn't it true we go from the milk of the word to the meat of the word? Isn't it true that as the more you study the Bible, whatever that issue is, read the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to pray, what salvation means, who God is, it, it's progressive. You grow, grow more and more 
in your understanding. You pick up the book and you go, I've read this passage, you know, 37 times. And on the 38th time, you pick it up and go, I never saw that before. That's just the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, growing us, maturing us. I have many more things to say to you. In fact, the many more things is the entirety of the New Testament. It's an entirety of the New Testament from, uh, of information from Matthew to the book of the Revelation. But currently, you can't bear them now. You can't handle it right now. So there's the need. Verse 13, here's the extent. The extent of the Holy Spirit's revelation. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Again, Jesus says, look, there's more information coming, more revelation coming, more revelation concerning my person, my work, more revelation concerning my teaching, more revelation concerning the fact of me being in the world, Christ being in the world, what my life, death, burial, resurrection means. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, and again, it should be noted in the Greek text, there's actually a definite article in front of the first word truth. So it really should read like this, when he, the spirit of the truth comes. When he, the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So that's the helper, the paraclete, the third person of the Trinity. He is called the spirit of the truth. And, and he's very suitable for that task that he's been given to be the Savior's witness, to lead his disciples into all the truth. So the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who's called the Spirit of the truth, is just like Christ, Christ incarnate, when he was in the flesh, right? He, he, who, who, how did he identify himself? He said, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Psalm 31, verse 5, Isaiah 65, verse 16, God is called the God of truth. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are the God of the truth. And again, this special title reserved for the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of the truth, he glorifies the incarnate word, who again refers to himself as the truth, and he glorifies them, or glorifies the person of the truth, the person of the, Holy, or the, person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the scriptures, which are God's truth. Again, your word is true. Now, we know when we take up the Scripture and we read, it's not the uh, ideas of men, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. First or Second Peter 1, 20. These uh, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy is ever made by the act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit uh, spoke from God. So when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Spirit of the truth comes, he's going to guide you in the context of these 11 disciples into all the truth. Again, Jesus is promising to these men future revelation. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be endless progressive divine revelation, endless disclosure of truth throughout all of human history. But again, Jesus in the context is telling these men, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide them into all of the truth. And again, all the truth, the whole body, a fixed body of Christian doctrine that's going to get, be again contained in the New Testament. So again, really in the context, this is the promise of the coming New Testament text. All the truth that God wanted to be revealed that is contained in the Scripture, the Spirit of the truth is going to guide you into all the truth. He's going to bring to your remembrance that as He will allow you to supernaturally remember everything that I did and said and then write it down in the four Gospels. That's in essence what Christ is saying to these men at the time. And again, that's exactly what happened historically. Right, to the apostles or those who are closely associated with them, they, they wrote the, the Gospels under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who gave them remembrance. And then it was the person of the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write, uh, not only Luke, but to write Acts. And then he inspired uh, the person of Paul to write Romans and a number of other New Testament texts. All of the other epistles written by others than, than them, he, he inspired them to write. He inspired them to work out the theology of what it means to have Christ in the world. He inspired them to write out the theology of what it means to have the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He reveals truth. He guides the authors of the New Testament all the way up to and through the book of the Revelation. It's interesting. We're studying John here and his writings through the person of the Holy Spirit. And John uh, is encouraged, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, one more time to take up the pen to give us God's final revelation. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. He sent and communicated 
to his angels, uh, by his angel to his bondservant, John. Book of the Revelation, tremendous truth. Tremendous truth about Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's true. Tremendous truth about those things that will happen shortly. Yeah, that's true. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's God speaking to his church. This is are his final words to the church. Again, Jesus says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, it's interesting that Paul kind of adds on to this a little bit. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, that God, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed from them through the spirit, for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man, and which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. We Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. It's a tremendous truth. God has a lot more to say at the time. He has a lot more that he will say through the person of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament text. These men at the time couldn't handle it, but we can. We receive not from the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us from God. God wants you to know him. God wants you to grow in grace. God wants you to grow in your understanding and your love for him and love for the Savior. And again, it's the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the Godhead who inspired the New Testament writers. And since he, the Holy Spirit, is God, he knows all things that God the Father knows. And since he, the Holy Spirit, is God, he knows all things that God the Son knows. Therefore, he, the Holy Spirit, is quite qualified to reveal all divine truth to men. Again, God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the truth. And because he is the spirit of the truth, listen, it is impossible for him to lie. It is impossible for him to lead people into error or to inspire error. And, and to state otherwise is an absolute assault, uh, absolute assault on the nature and the character of our holy God, who inspired the entirety of the New Testament text, the entirety of the Bible, all of Scripture. In fact, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all Scripture is inspired, right? You know that word, theophanustus, it's is breathed out. All Scripture is the breathed out Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Everything that God's Word said is true. Everything that God's Word says is inerrant. It is without error. It is infallible. It has no falsehood. Therefore, when we read the God, when we read the Bible, we're confident that we're reading the very words of God, the breathed out breath of God, uh, inscripturated. Absolutely true. First question in all of human history. Genesis 3. Question? Indeed has God said. And you take your fist and you pound it on the table and you say, yes, he has. And he speaks absolutely clear, clearly with authority. And he doesn't stumble. He doesn't stutter. The whole world, the whole world system wants you to doubt this book. The whole world system wants you to doubt this book. It discredits this book. And, and this whole thing, eclectic evangelicalism that doesn't point to the word and Jesus Christ wants you to, in essence, take this book and chuck it because they want you to listen to them and some funny story they have or some sideshow that they're putting on uh, in the morning service. It is the same spirit of error. We take the word and say, it's the word of God. I need to know it because everything comes from God. It's his breathed out, inerrant, infallible word. Now, we know sometimes that God, through the Holy Spirit, he used the, obviously he used the minds and the vocabularies and the experiences of biblical writers and, and, and to write out his word. Sometimes he, told, sometimes he told the writers to write exactly the words he wanted to say. But what he did, what he did God did, is he used, used, in, he used fallible men to produce his own perfect word, his own infallible trustworthy, without falsehood, without error, inerrant word, uh, true truth, right? He produced true truth through the word of God. You go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable. That's one of the greatest uh, texts in the entire of scripture that talks about the sovereignty of God. That God gets his word out. God supernaturally intends uh, through fallible men to supernaturally work through the person of the Holy Spirit, through sinful, fallible men to produce his perfect, holy, infallible, inerrant word. Indeed, has God said, yes, he has. 
sit down and open the word and I'll show you. If this book is not our authority, we have no authority. And that's modern evangelicalism. It just does what it thinks is right in the moment. We can't make decisions on anything without a standard of truth. And God's word is that standard. When the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So again, note the ministry of the Holy Spirit's personal. Again, he spoke to the prophets, the apostles, what to write down. He personally revealed his truth to them. And likewise, on this side of the cross, he does the same thing for us. He reveals his truth to us. He guides us personally to all the truth. He opens our minds to the truth. He encourages us. He comforts us with his truth. When the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Again, note the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is truth-centered. And again, it's truth-centered, and it's all truth, all the truth. That's God's word. And God's word is the fixed set standard, the fixed set of body of Christian doctrine, a fixed body of knowledgeable, a fixed body of knowledge that is knowable and unchanging, contained in the New Testament. And once the New Testament was laid down in full, fully revealed, there's no more to be added to it. There's no additional revelation given. There's no additional information because the canon of Scripture is closed. Revelation twenty two eighteen. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of his prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of people going around and say, well, God spoke to me. God spoke to me. God spoke to me. Well, they're, they're trying to claim additional revelation. When you have additional revelation, you end up with the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or you end up with the Mormons. Or when you set aside the authority of the Word of God, you end up being a Roman Catholic. Uh, Roman Catholic. You just invent it. So again, some people contend that God is still speaking today, but the Bible says absolutely not. Indeed has God said, yes, he speaks clearly, he doesn't stumble, and he has spoken finally. In these last days, the author of the book of Hebrews says he's spoken to us in his son. Are you getting a a, a hint of the point here? Jesus Christ happens to be the point. Because Jesus Christ is the issue. Have I ever said that here? I think. So again, in the context of the the, the promises given to these 11 disciples, because again, they're going to be the people that's going to provide the basis for the inspiration of the New Testament text. When he, the spirit of the truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. You read the same thing in Ephesians 4. Uh, Christ gives gifts to his church. The first of those gifts are apostles. Their work is primarily to provide a fixed revelation that would be the standard of the church uh, uh, for all the subsequent ages. And, and again, that work that is promised from the person of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who guides the truth. He's the one who sets the standard. You go to Ephesians uh, uh, 2.20. Uh, it says the apostolic revelation has been laid out. The foundation of the church uh, ha- has been laid. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Therefore, after the New Testament is completed, after the truth has been revealed in total, after all of the truth has been laid down, uh, there's nothing else to come. That's what he's saying. All the doctrine of truth, all the body of knowledge concerning the life, the ministry, the death, the, the, the saving work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything centered on his life, centered on the, his virgin birth, his atoning propitiatory death, his bodily resurrection, all truths pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. All of that has been laid down once already, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Again, there's nothing new to be revealed, nothing new to be added, nothing to be laid down once you already laid down the foundation, right? This building has a foundation, doesn't need two foundations has one foundation. It's a pretty good foundation. The building's been here a long time, right? It's built solidly. So is the Word of God. The fixed standard of God's truth revealed, completed in the both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Again, nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that. The Holy Spirit who is the trustworthy, our trustworthy interpreter, our infallible teacher. He takes us to, listen, he takes us to the truth. He doesn't take us to the church. Some people think they go to the church to get their information. And some churches, user-friendly, it's not in my notes. I don't know why this stuff pops in my head. But some user-friendly churches who think it'd be a really good idea if you left your Bible at home and we'll just put the word up on the overhead. Well, that's the greatest dumb idea since the Reformation I've ever thought of. 
I didn't think of it, right? You leave your Bible at home? No, you bring your Bible here, and you make sure you read your Bible and it says the same thing I'm telling it. You don't check it by the overhead. You check it by the book that's in your hand that you take up every single day of your life and read, right? Fixed standard of truth. He doesn't take us to the church, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't take us to a tradition. Some people think he takes them to tradition. He, he doesn't take you to subjective experiences like the charismatics. He doesn't take you to human reasons like so many uh, people believe. The Holy Spirit takes us and quickens us, illuminates for us and interprets the only instrument he has to work with, that being the written word of God. Right? Psalm 119, uh, 160, the sum of your word of truth. He takes us to the word. That's why he's called the spirit of the truth. When the helper, when he, the spirit of the truth comes, listen, he will guide you into all truth. Arthur Pink says, look, there are three classes of people that need to be guided. Those who are blind, those who are too weak to walk alone, those who are journeying through an unknown country. In each of these senses, does the Holy Spirit guide God's elect? Uh, by nature, we are all spiritually blind. He guides us to the way of truth. When we are babes in Christ, he has to teach us how to walk. And as travelers through this wilderness scene, we are in journey to the heavenly country. Therefore, he points the narrow way which leads to life. Good statement. He adds this. He says, note carefully, he will guide you into all the truth, not bring you into, but guide you. He says there must be a yieldedness on your part, a corresponding obedience. If the Spirit guides our steps, the necessary implication is that we're walking with him, that we're closely following his directions. The term also suggests that an orderly, gradual, progressive advancing, we grow in the knowledge as well as in grace, he says. So again, he's saying, look, if you expect to be guided by the truth, or guided by the Holy Spirit to the truth, then you need to submit yourself to the, fill in the word, you need to submit yourself to the truth. You need to be informed by the truth, submit yourself to the truth, walk by the truth, submit to the leading of the truth, the spirit of truth, to his leading, obey him and no one else. Far too many Christians have too many competing voices calling for their attention. Listen to me, listen to me. Said it to you before, unplug the computer, turn the TV off. Fill your mind with truth, not with the world. The world has nothing to offer you that's helpful or salvific. The world wants to take you away from Christ because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What about the source of truth? Where does the truth come from? And obviously, I've got to move along a little bit faster here. Verse 13 continues, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For here it is, he will not speak on his own initiative. He won't speak on his own authority. He won't speak of himself. He won't speak independently. Whatever he hears, he will speak and disclose to you what is to come. And all he's saying here is, Just as the Son came not to act independently of the Father, but to serve the Father, when he was sent into the world by the Father, the Holy Spirit likewise, he doesn't act independently of the Father, doesn't act independently of the Son. Uh, of the, Son. the Holy Spirit is God. He acts, com acts in complete harmony with the Father, complete harmony with the Son. One commentator says this, Therefore, again, the Holy, Spirit is leading, uh, the Holy Spirit's leading is always consistent with God's revealed will in the Bible. He'll never lead anyone to violate the principles of God's Word, when he speaks, he comes and speaks through the scripture that he has inspired. If, if, if you believe God is speaking to you or somebody comes and teaches you something and says it comes from the word of God and it goes against the word of God, they are lying to you. And the Holy Spirit will never do that. If you read the word of God and you come up with error that leads you into further error, there is a problem because he is the spirit of the truth. And he guides us into the truth. When he, the spirit of the truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. Again, it, what is to come? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. It, it's not necessarily prophetic. It is, but it really, it's revelatory. Uh, he's saying, look, there's more, there's more information coming. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all the truth. Again, it's a reference primarily to the coming of the, the promise of the New Testament Scripture. Because the New Testament scripture uh, encompasses the entire sweep of history of, of the person of Christ, right from the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, his birth, life, ministry, miracles, death, trial, death, burial, resurrection, 
all the way to Pentecost, then all the way through the book of the Revelation, all the way to the eternal state. Everything in the New Testament has everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So he shows them their need of the Spirit's revelation. He shows them to the extent of the Holy Spirit's revelation. He shows them the truth. It's coming from God. And then he gives the ultimate purpose of the revelation coming from the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 14, he shall glorify me. That's why he's here. Jesus Christ, chief object, or Jesus Christ is the chief object of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Jesus Christ is the chief object of the Holy Spirit's ministry. The glorification of Christ is his grand objective in the world. Now you contrast that with Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, this system, this anti-God system. Paul reminds us 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Here it is. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the little g God of this world system, Satan, blinds the mind of the unbelieving to the gospel and the glory of Christ. However, the Holy Spirit's chief purpose in the world is to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's his, that's his role. He exposes Christ. He puts Christ's glory on display. He shall glorify me. Jesus Christ is the center. He's the capstone of all divine truth. Obviously, there's a whole lot predicted or a whole lot spoken of him in the Old Testament uh, um, uh, uh, concerning him. Every passage in the Old Testament, there's a kind of a teaching that goes around that says Christ in every scripture. Well, there's a whole lot of Christ in the Old Testament. Every, pa- every passage is not a direct reference to the person of Jesus Christ. You start creating all kinds of exegetical hermeneutical error when you do that. And I always tell guys, one of the, one of the uh, maybe a helpful picture, I don't know, in your, do you have photo albums in your house? Yeah, a couple of them maybe. Photos on your phone, wherever you put them. Are you in every single picture and every single photo album and on every single photograph that was ever taken in your house? No. Are you in a lot of them? Probably. Is Jesus Christ on every single page and every single scripture? No. Is he in a lot of them? Yeah. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, etc. and so forth, right? Obviously the whole flow of the Old Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. He is coming, then his arrival in the New Testament, right? But you've got to be careful that we don't run error in, in that way also. Right? He shall glorify me, he, uh, uh, for when he uh, shall take of mine, he shall disclose it to you. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. Disclose all the truth about Christ. Uh, what's the thesis verse, remember, uh, of this book? John 20, 31. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe you might have life in his name, right? That's why everything was written down, because the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, want you to know the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, in our day, the spirit of the age, the spirit of error in which we live in, promotes everything else but Christ, right? Rationalism, ritualism, fanaticism, philosophy, science. Science is the new God of our age, whatever in the world that is. Anything and everything except the person of Jesus Christ, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, the Holy Spirit's role is not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ. Again, think how foolish those people that come from certain backgrounds, certain groups, charismatics, etc., and so forth, when they focus on the gifts, when they focus on all the spectacular, crazy, supposed activities of the Holy Spirit, rather than to focus on the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit's true ministry is to focus on Christ. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things, verse 15, all things the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he takes of mine and discloses it to you. It's just another affirmation of the deity of Christ. Men don't talk like that, mere men. Men men don't come and say, look, God's going to take, God's going to glorify him and all the things that the Father has are mine. But Jesus said that because he's deity. So again, the Holy Spirit's role is primarily not to glorify himself, it's to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't call attention to himself, he calls attention to Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us to focus on ourselves, our experiences, but he causes us to focus on Christ. So when can people continue to emphasize the Holy Spirit and their supposed experiences in the Spirit, listen, when people continually emphasize the Holy Spirit and their supposed experiences in the Spirit, listen, they're not filled with the Spirit. They're not filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit exalts Christ. If you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're really under the control of the Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus Christ is all you want to talk about. 
he's all you want to talk about. He's all you want to focus on. All these things, verse 15, the Father has given. All, all these things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine. He'll disclose it to you. Again, he's speaking in the context to the disciples. Then again, all the glorious truth about Jesus Christ is going to be written down through them in the New Testament, inspired by the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to unfold all the unfathomable riches of Christ. And again, that's exactly what happened in history, right? Christ continued to work in the hearts and the minds of the, uh, the apostles, the Lord's disciples. They grew in their understanding of Christ. They were enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And, and that truth just unfolded in their lives, in the pen, as they, under the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote down what God would have us know. And that's the purpose of, Christ, of the Holy Spirit in the world, glorify Christ. He takes people to the text of Scripture because the Scripture speaks of Christ. The Spirit continues to testify to the truthfulness of, the, of Christ, the truthfulness of the Scripture, the uniqueness of the glory of Christ, because, again, that's his role in the world. And that's why we love the words around here, right? Amen? We love the word here because the word of truth, inspired by God, his breathed out word, takes us to the person of Jesus Christ, and we grow in our knowledge and love and understanding of him, just as God would intend, all right?